Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? What's new? I'm all right. What's new? <sighs> Let's limit it to what's new with your I was reading. Say what globally? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what? we don't want to go there, I don't think. Not really, though actually I am going to mention something uh, about Ukraine. But yes, in terms of what we've been reading, I told you about the mushrooms, didn't I, last week? Yes. So I won't talk about them again, though they are completely thrilling. Uh, I started a sort of science fiction counterfactual, which will make a number of people probably immediately turn off. Please don't turn (laughs) off. They don't have to read it. It's called A Calculating Stars by you Mary You read it Robinette. so we don't have to. <laughs> exactly. Mary <laughs> Robinette Kowal. I think I'm doing that thing again of reading it about a year late. At least right. a year late. Well, at least we're consistent. Yeah. Um, and uh, about uh, a female sort of mathematician and a counterfactual about what would happen if a massive meteor had struck Washington in 1952. What would happen? I don't know yet. I'm finding mm. out. Mm. How about you? Um, well, I have just today received a book and it's exactly what was needed. It's um, it's a photography book. Um, no words. Just photographs by um, Luigi Ghiri, who was um, he died quite young. I think he was not even 50, but um, born in the 40s. Uh, yeah, died in the 90s. Um, I don't think I'm wrong in saying one of the most important, you know, 20th century photographers. Italian, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, born in Reggio Emilia. And it's this book, um, it's published by Mac Books. They've been going about 10 years, I think. Um, and it's just a beautiful collection of his photos of Puglia. So, I mean, it's grim and grey here. And it's just this beautiful collection of a photos of Puglia, it's called um, Tra Albe Tramonti, so um, uh, between uh, sunrises and sunsets. Um, and he just had this wonderful, I think he started as a surveyor, a land surveyor, 
um, and something about the way he must have gone about his day job, you know, looking at the land and noticing uh, minor details just seems to inform the way that he went about his his photography as well. And so many of them have this kind of, you know, when you look at a photograph and you can just see that everything is on the verge of story. It's, mm. it, you know, the, there, are, there are ready-made characters that just just full of um, context for you to fill in yourself. Yes, yeah, so about I, to I, sort I, of start saying something. Or exactly. To life. So is it, exactly. But is it, is it, is it in the city or is it in the countryside or both? Or um, they're mostly city. They're mo- lots, lots of, lots of warm stone um, uh, and, and people leaning against cars um, nice. and, and, and things like that. But yeah, there's, 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 there's um, more rural scenes as well. But yeah, so I've, I've completely, I've just lost a few hours. I mean, not lost, gained a few hours. Yeah. I've gained yes. a few hours there. <laughs> That that sounds like a, a a nice way to spend time. Um, I did I did say that I was going to mention Ukraine. I'm not going to um, go into the news, as it were, but just to say that we had a piece a couple of weeks ago. That, so the writer Julian Evans was saying, I think it was when they were Russian troops were sort of on the border. Uh, yeah, it was, says, it was the 18th of February, wasn't it? So it was just before. Yeah, um, and. I was reading it again and it's, you know, it's quite prophetic apart from anything else because he says, were Putin to venture a conventional invasion today, he would find a Ukrainian army ready if outnumbered. He can also be certain of something else. The vast majority of Ukrainians will reject his presence. And he talks about um, the time that he spent in there. But he's he's really, he, he's talking about literature um, from Ukraine. So he's talking about um, a collection of poetry um, and also there were some dispatches uh, from occupied Donbass from someone who was who was there while that was happening. Um, who, that that person was 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 put in prison, wasn't he? But five years of his fifteen year sentence uh, apparently is 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 down to his having put quotation marks around the Donetsk People's Republic, um, yeah, which is that's... remarkable. Just the, I mean, I suppose it's it's language, uh, the role of language in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the the tough end of it. Um, there's a book of short stories as well, um, by Yevgenia Belorosets. That's translated as well by Eugene Ostashevsky. Uh, and then a, a report, an account of a sister telling the story of of her brother, who was a soldier who died in combat. Um, and I just thought it was worth um mentioning. You know that everything else is still going on there. Literature is still happening there. Mm. Um, and these are dispatches. Uh, I mean, some of them really, actually, literally are dispatches from the front line. But but the poetry and short stories is a different kind of chronicling, isn't it? Mm. So this is this piece by Julian Evans. Anyone who uh, is interested will find it on the TLS uh, website. Now, coming up on this week's show. Faint Praise, we'll hear about a recent book on the cultural significance of conking out, from Troilus and Crusader to Fifty Shades of Grey via Shakespeare and Bram Stoker, and a new poem, Storm Windows, by Angie Mlinko. But first, Lucy, we're dipping into your arts pages. Yes, we are, because a couple of weeks ago, an internationally acclaimed and very successful playwright had the world premiere of his new play performed in London, in English, in translation. The play is The Forest and the playwright Florian Zeller. He also wrote the plays The Sun, The Height of the Storm and The Father, which he then directed as a film starring Anthony Hopkins. 
the film then went on to win an Oscar for Hopkins and one for Zeller, along with his co-writer and long-term translator, Christopher Hampton. We asked Muriel Zaga to review Zeller's new play, and we're delighted that she joins us today to talk us through the most successful representative of contemporary French theatre. Muriel, many thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. So first of all, I have to immediately qualify what I've just said. To be fair, you call Zella the most successful representative of contemporary French theatre. That's along with uh, Yasmina Reza, who wrote Art, um, among other things. And you talk about the qualities that they share. Can can you outline them for us? I suppose what they have in common is um, a certain uh, uh, sobriety of language, of dialogue, which perhaps makes translation easier. So it's perhaps no accident that they've both been translated not not and performed successfully, not just in English, but in many other languages all over the world as well, because the, mm. the, the language lends itself to translation. It's supple enough and sort of limpid enough to be intelligible to many different cultures. And at the same time, they are both recognizably uh, French authors, and that probably is part of their charm. It, 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 are they firmly in a French tradition, do you think? So, I mean, those things are always very shifting because uh, um, some people, you know, when you you, you read up about uh, Reza uh, or uh, Zella in, in sort of French um, contexts, people will say they write sort of Anglo-Saxon style theatre. Right. <laughs> or sometimes they say, uh, in the case of uh, Florian Zella and Yasmina Reza, that they are representatives of what we call a, a nouveau boulevard. So... Théâtre du boulevard, the boulevard theatre, is essentially the same as vaudeville, you know. Mm. It's uh, it's rooted in 19th century um, sort of bourgeois theatre, um, comedies of manners, typically stories of adultery. So there's the lover is in the cupboard and, you know... Mm. Uh, comes back unexpectedly so usually it's the triangle of husband wife lover or uh, husband wife mistress and uh, there are slamming doors and so other examples of this are the, the farces of uh, Georges Fedeau for example. That was also notable for being very very popular very mainstream wasn't it? Enormously mainstream and rather tired and certainly when I was growing up in a long time ago, in the 1970s, uh, Boulevard Theatre was often on television and it was really middle of the road, quite tired and, you know, exhausted, really. And so what's happened with uh, authors like Florian Zella and Yasmina Reza before him is a sort of reappropriation of that uh, genre and a rejuvenation of it by adding to it elements of uh, the absurd, uh, elements of the uncanny, uh, making it a little bit more, a little less stable, a bit more sort of uh, slippery so that you don't quite know what's going on. So uh, that makes, I mean, I, I don't know, being French myself, I don't know, but I imagine that anything that intellectualizes uh, the theatrical experience will be perceived as typically French. I don't know whether that's true, yes. but, you know, Zeller will say, for example, in interview, he said, because he was originally, he was a novelist. That's how he made the name. Mm. Uh, he was a, a prodigy, in fact, a very young novelist and very successful at a very young age. And then he, he sort of 
moved on to the theatre and the way he uh, describes the, the change is to say, uh, the, you know, the theatre is so interesting because it's experiencing something that is ephemeral. It's like training for death. You know, Gosh, that's one, one way of looking at the theatre. <laughs> We're all training for death all the time, in a way, Florian. So you're part of something that, you know, as it is being made, is also being unmade. You know, that's a very French way of... Um, <laughs> to talking you through the theatrical experience but where he's um brilliant and brilliantly successful is that he makes it very entertaining so you 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 have your cake and you can also eat it you know you think i'm part of some sort of great cultural moment significant moment where i'm connecting with death in some way you know and touching my limits and at the same time i'm i'm watching a very sort of pacey piece of theater with a lot of the usual tropes of the husband who's lying to his wife and the girlfriend who's emotionally unstable and all the doors are slamming more or less metaphorically and it's Mm, not boring mm -hmm. but uh, you still come away thinking feeling that you've 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 performed a cultural act (laughs) okay so yes I see what you mean yeah so that it's actually a very difficult a difficult line to tread I imagine I think it's incredibly difficult and impressive that it can be achieved and with with Yasmina Reza the play that really made her name was called Art and that was the play this is a long time ago but it's um it's a three-hander three male characters one of them has bought a piece of art which is essentially a white canvas with thin white lines on it and he's spent a lot of money on it and then two of his close friends come and look at it with him and they discuss the validity of this piece of art or the significance, possible significance of it. And as a premise, that's quite sort of French, but ultimately uh, it's, it's a comedy or it's a tragic comedy about manners, about bourgeois manners, about bourgeois anxieties. So that's what I mean. It's walking the line between something that um, it sort of belongs to or, or sort of, you know, dips a toe into the, the world of high art and what it might mean. And at the same time gives you an evening of entertainment that is not overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. It's also notable, isn't it, that just for both of them, that um, Christopher Hampton, who is a very successful playwright and director himself, is a translator of both of them and Zeller's co-writer on the film of The Father. Do you think that connection has helped or is that just that he's, he's got a good nose for, for what works? Well, probably a bit of both, but I'm sure it's helped tremendously because uh, his name is a, a badge of literary quality but quite quite deservedly you know I remember being astonished by some of his translations of Molière for example you know he's a fantastic dramatic translator so yes I think if you have Hampton as your co-pilot then probably you're likely to travel much further and more quickly than without I'm not entirely sure what the dynamic I don't know actually I don't know whether as an author you would presumably you would approach Christopher Hampton and ask him if he'd be interested in translating your plays. And then if he says yes, then that's it. You're, you know, which is why um, The Forest was able to be premiered in London in English directly. And I think Zella had done that before in New York. I think The Mother, which was the play he wrote after The Father, The Mother premiered in New York with Isabelle Huppert in the lead in English. Oh, uh, in English. Yes. Okay, so it's not the first time he's done it. No, no, no. He's done that before. And that shows a very um, savvy understanding of what his brand can do, you know. I didn't, I didn't know that he was behind the film The Father, actually. Um, and I thought that was brilliantly done. Yeah, I think what I would say is because I found The Forest slightly disappointing, um, 
I wonder if actually he's now not transferred his energies into filmmaking because he's, so he's someone who became famous in his early 20s as a novelist, published a few novels that were well received. Uh, partly there, I say, because he was very, very presentable physically. Very <laughs> I was going to mention this because I was looking, I was looking, no, I wasn't just going to say, gosh, what a dish. What I mean is I was looking, you know, I was looking up and, and reading about him. And there's a remarkable yeah. number of pieces when he's younger. Yeah. In the, and they're in, the, they're in like, it was, I saw it in Elle and Marie Claire exactly. and Femme Actuelle and all of that. And I was like, well, how come they're all doing things about this young novelist? And then they were like, and every one of them mentioned his looks. It makes a nice change, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that oh, way yes, around. It, was, it was that, but it was definitely that way <laughs> yeah. around. They were like, look at this cheekbones and his books are all right <laughs> yeah so he was a sort of you know people described him as a blonde angel it was that sort of tone which is you know if, if the the genders were reversed you'd think that's just terribly exploitative mm. <laughs> I suppose there's no reason why a man shouldn't be able to to ride that wave as well so he made his name as a novelist then uh, started writing plays slightly by accident I think he was asked to write a little bit of a libretto for an opera and then it led to writing plays and you know confronting that sort of sense of the ephemeral and so on and that worked very well for him and I think the the success of the father was so tremendous um, the coup was possibly getting Anthony Hopkins on board because uh, I think he's it's probably one of his best performances mm. ever and then the adaptation because that is why they won the Oscar for the for the screenplay which he adapted of course with Christopher Hampton mm. So that reinforces, again, his brand as a writer, but also he directed the film himself, which is an unbelievable gift to think that you can be a big fish in a small Parisian bowl where, you know, you're um, the flavor of the month and everyone thinks you're very clever and very good looking and so on. But then become, as a French um, author, somebody who is given the reins Mm, to make that jump. That is really quite extraordinary. And I wonder, having because uh, Zeller is very good at promoting, he would be, he's rather good at promoting himself by um, slyly uh, evoking influences or or, or parallels uh, with other authors. So, for example, when he was writing novels, he talked about Milan uh, Kundera a lot and said that essentially he was the new, you know, uh, the new iteration. And then with theatre he talks about Harold Pinter and how this has had oh. his influence on his work and with film um, David Lynch is the person he would um, evoke so he is always aiming fairly high in terms of you know uh, references and parallels and there appears to be a, a sort of order there where he's working his way through different sort of artistic media. It's a clever work, a work of kind of anchoring isn't it? Yeah exactly. To and associate yourself with those names. It, it is because there are definitely echoes uh, of all, all of these people's oeuvres in, in, in his own, although some people would say often in a more minor key. But, but with the father, um, it's Lynchian perhaps to, in the sense that it is that there's this sort of very troubling blurring between reality and, and, and dream or, or imagination mm-hmm. illusion. But it's not like a David Lynch movie. The, the preoccupations are are quite different and dementia is perhaps is very much referenced currently you know this is there's been a sort of major coming out of uh, to do with alzheimer's dementia we talk about it a lot more openly and it's it, it's in a lot of literature and film but i think he managed to uh, capture something there that's really affected a lot of people 
and uh, the the tricks of the film the visual tricks have a lot of emotional resonance so it's there is substance so I, mm. I'm interested to see what his next film adaptation is going to be because he's now adapting another one of his plays which is called The Son so there was the father then the mother then the son which is about a couple whose son is in deep depression and they're trying to help him out and not really very able to to do it and that I think he's again he's managed to net uh, Laura Dern and Hugh Jackman for the leads so it's very likely to be you know to have a lot of money behind it and we'll have to see if it's as good as the father but certainly the sons are mm. very promising and it may be then therefore that his interest in the theatre is waning slightly perhaps mm. it's difficult to do both Yes, it must be. Yeah. I wonder if I was thinking about The Father, which I only know, I've only seen kind of bits of it, um, but I've, I've, I've read about it. I wondered if, because he does seem to have a sort of style, doesn't he? Like recurring lines and um, uh, sort of acts. That, we'll go back to this in more detail for The Forest, but uh, and sort of Pinteresque in a way, and what you say about the, the, the decor and of the of the set changing and sort of visual tricks do you think that worked brilliantly for dementia because in a way it's it's almost a little bit like a recreation of what what it might feel like but then it doesn't work so well for for other things yes I think there was a, a sort of uh, um, a synergy there or a very happy encounter between uh, what we I mean for those of us who <laughs> have not experienced it yet but from what we know of what how dementia affects people the sort of onset of confusion and not re- losing your bearings you know not really knowing who where you are people change their appearance or you forget who they are all of that to be able to um, to make that tang- tangible with um through a sort of you know again the sort of pinteresque absurdist approach um it 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 gives it substance it gives it meaning so it's not just a jeu d'esprit where um this might mean one thing or it might mean another and that that is slightly the issue with the forest is that the there's not that much at stake whereas in the in the father the story is very strong there is a lot at stake and it's very French again to talk about the human condition, you know, and uh, tackling the human condition. But I think he does actually achieve that with the father. He does put his finger on something that everyone can relate to in themselves and in possibly a family member, but also in themselves, because we're all of us every day at times wrestling with, uh, you know, a clarity. It's not always, in, it's not always. A, you know. mm. <laughs> Maybe I'm speaking for myself. No, 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 no. I said, in fact, I was saying to a family member this morning that I was having trouble with nouns. They looked at me a bit blankly. <laughs> Everything okay? Anyway, let's let's say that nouns nouns are fine for now. Um, let let's talk about the forest then, the new play. So it's directed by another um long term collaborator, Jonathan Kent, mm. and it's at the Hampstead Theatre. What um, what what was it like? Um, so it's very it's gorgeous it's wonderfully uh, staged the uh, there's a very clever sort of uh, fragmented stage which again is a sort of uh, metaphor for the mind of the the, the protagonist who's uh, confused about the possible consequences of an adulterous affair that he's he's had um so part of the set is his apartment where he lives with his wife and then part of the set is the bedroom where he meets his girlfriend and another part of the set is a sort of strange study or interrogation room or office where other things happen um that's all very well done the cast is great i did think it was 
rather a slight piece compared to uh, previous plays of Zeller's because um, because the the boulevard element, so the vaudeville element of the husband, wife, mistress is pretty much still left intact. There's a, there's a little bit of a, a nightmarish twist. We don't know. I mean, the, the character of the man of the husband is played by two actors, Paul McGann and uh, Toby Stevens, who play sort of alternating versions of the same person. So you have to hang on to your hat and try and work out what happened, what really happened. You know, um, is the girlfriend still alive or not? Who said what? Uh, scenes are repeated again in a sort of Pinteresque or absurdist way. Scenes are repeated with tiny variations, which is something that Yasmina Reza also has uh, experimented with to make you question what really happened. And all of that yeah. is mm. um, quite entertaining, but ultimately it's about a very vain man who's had an affair with a younger woman and is feeling terrible about it. And the it's difficult to engage emotionally beyond a certain point with that story. I I didn't think there was enough there to warrant, um, you know, the uh, the stamp of a really interesting, innovative play. It seemed a little tired. Also, the female mm-hmm. parts are thin, incredibly thin. And I, of course, everything is seen through the point of view of the man so perhaps that is how he sees them you know we have to allow for that but um the wife is played by Jean, gina mckee who's a wonderful actress and is really not given very much to do here uh, the girlfriend mm. is played by um angel colby who again has a lot of energy but is reduced to the part of unstable hot chick essentially and the wife is a long-suffering but very beautiful wife that sounds like a cliche doesn't it? I mean, it sounds very French. I would say even that it's you know not the not for the first time have I thought we the French. I have to take <laughs> some of the responsibility. Have not received, there are quite a few memos that that got lost. <laughs> you know, we still haven't received. So I don't think Florian Zeller, for example, is aware that this sort of um, these sorts of tropes about women are uh, difficult to sell nowadays. Mm. I, I don't think he knows that. And he's not a, he's quite a young man. So that's just food for thought in terms of how quickly French society is changing or not. Yes. I suppose in a sense, then it's, it's sort of surprising that one of the, what sounds like one of the most um, on the nose lines in the play um, is, is uttered by, I think it's the daughter you say, she says, in the end, it's always the same story. And that seems to almost be the line that, that, that summarizes. Yeah. Um, your thoughts on the play there's a there's a tiredness you've mentioned it's almost like maybe he's exhausted the style that he's been working in up to this point does he just need to try something new I think so I think maybe it's time to move away from boulevard nouveau boulevard old boulevard get off the boulevard and try something entirely different (laughs) yeah I think he's possibly reached the limit of that and maybe it's a a question of age as well that he's now uh, how old is he now actually he's in his 40s now isn't Mm, he I think so yeah not quite um so perhaps it's no accident that where he's done really well is with the father with a story that is um about graver themes and uh, a little less about male vanity a little more about human frailty 
would you say that he does have a style and that this is possibly the thing that, that you think maybe he needs to change a bit now? There's this thing about recurring lines. Um, they say she says that. Mm. But also, I think I was reading a review we had of The Height of the Storm, which also has the line, it's always the same story in it. <laughs> and, and in the forest, you say, someone says, you've changed our lives. And then later on, he says to someone else, you've changed my life many times. There, there are recurring phrases, aren't there? And bouquets of flowers. In The Height of the Storm as well, apparently, bouquets of flowers to up nobody knows what the heck is going on do you think he's sort of recycling things a bit I think he is I mean in a way you could say well he's creating his his dramatic universe so maybe that is one also often characters have the same I mean some of the same names Mm. recur you know wives are often called Laurence for example André is a name that I mean you know various names and you could say well that's because he's just sort of refining his his universe. I agree that there's there's an element of formula possibly, um, mm. and that he, uh, well, you know, he's 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 quite he is very self aware, and so he would say, for example, that his early novels, which were celebrated, I mean, up to a point, you know, within again a smallish uh, Parisian bowl, perhaps, that they were. Um, works of his youth and that he he feels no connection to them now and that perhaps if you are an artist who's going to keep going forward then you have to be prepared to cast aside various skins you know and so the novelist skin is gone it is possible I think that he's reached the end of the line I say that and then he's going to come back and dazzle us all with a, a play <laughs> next year and then I'll, I'll be delighted but, uh, but perhaps it's time to, to to let go of that the dramatist's skin and instead devote himself to to films because he appears to have a real talent for for filmmaking. Mm. You said in your piece as well that the theatre of the absurd is almost pastiched mm. in the forest. Um, I'm not 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 necessarily uh, supposed to be funny. It reminded me because I saw the um, the Ionesco, the chairs, which is on which is on at the moment as well, just about to finish, I think, which was kind of extreme theatre of the absurd and it was absolutely wonderful but a, a crucial difference seemed to me was that the UNESCO absolutely does not take itself seriously or certainly not too seriously. I think one of the problems is lack of humour yes and is a, a certain po-faced approach to uh, his own writing in the case of Zeller um, perhaps because um Perhaps because he's been taken so seriously from the beginning, <laughs> and also because he's he's not he's not really in, invented mm. um, this way of telling stories. You know the you know as I said, I mentioned that in the in relation with, to Pinter, Harold Pinter, uh, Eugene Ionesco in, invented a certain kind of theatre, and Zeller is a, is an heir to them, but he's not he's not a creator, and so possibly there's a certain reverence in the way that he uses those tropes because they are, you know, sacred things that he has inherited from other people rather than a playful experimentation of his own. Mm. And actually both of those uh, writers, Pinter and Ionesco, would, would, you would have thought wouldn't have 10 seconds of time for reverence, no. would they? I mean, <laughs> absolutely not their style at all. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so it's perhaps no accident that Florian Zeller likes to write about the divided consciousness because perhaps that's how he feels <laughs> in the creative act. I don't know. 
uh, but mm. but I would say yes, this play, and we can't say oh, it's because of the translation. Translation is very good, and I, I I'm sure that uh, it wouldn't be that different in in French. And the, the translation retains some of the French flavor because the the sexual politics. I say French, as I was saying. So if you want a little bit of a taste of French theater, then it's that's it's a, a sort of a harmless way to spend the evening. But I I don't imagine he has many more plays in him uh, of that ilk because yeah <laughs> <laughs> because really it's i think is uh, gide andre gide wrote something about theater and morality along the lines of i'm paraphrasing but um the ages that have produced theatre that is uh, otherworldly, uh, incredibly sort of noble, you know, so Greek tragedy or the, the, the tragedies of Racine, for example, those were the great ages where public morality, social morality was at its highest, he says. Whereas bourgeois theatre of the kind that Zella and Yasmin Ereza produce, which is a sort of mirror image of the theatre audience, People go and watch their plays partly to watch mm. themselves on stage because they're the ones being lampooned. And it's fun to see yourself being lampooned and and then, uh, you know, and then to think, well, I'm not as bad as him or I'm not as extreme as this, you know, uh, a ridiculous person. And then walk away feeling a little bit better than that. Gide would say that's a very, very thin way of engaging with the theatre and it doesn't reflect well on our own morals as a society. Oh, you mean that we, that we, we should be we should be kind of undergoing catharsis, that sort of thing. We should be undergoing catharsis, Lucy. Mm. We should be. <laughs> That's what we should be doing. <laughs> well, and actually, catharsis it doesn't have to be tragic either, does it? Yeah. I mean, it's usually used in the tragic sense, but it it could be as long. It's a sort of extreme, isn't it? In in any sense, it is. I mean, a paroxysm of laughter is just as cleansing as uh, as the tears of uh, of tragedy. Uh, and uh, yes, I did think the the play. That's another issue I had with the forest. Is it's not that funny. Uh, there's a little bit of comedy, but it re- it comes through from performance. Toby Stevens is very amusing, and uh, sort of runs with the part and chews at the furniture, and is very. Uh, there are moments of high comedy, but not really sufficient. Mm. because the, the tone keeps changing so is it real is it a dream is it tragedy is it comedy so one you begin to enjoy yourself and it, it sort of takes off and then we have to go back to uh you know uh a sort of simulacrum of theater of the absurd uh, there's a character yes there's a character called man in black uh, who wears white makeup that looks like a mask and he appears at times you know and reappears as a sort of judge from another world and that the I'm not entirely sure that it's um, the tone was quite right because I think it was funny without meaning to be at times. Yes, that's that's probably not not what you want, is it? Really, uh, unintentionally funny. Do, do these plays after they've premiered in in England and and in uh, in America on Broadway, um, do they tend to transfer to France or do they not? Do they not have a, a run in in France? I'm just wondering if it's like he's he's struck just the right amount of of packaged frenchness for for you know us brits and 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 americans to to identify as a you know a french play by a french playwright but that that frenchness just doesn't really play so well in france anymore they're a bit tired of that frenchness i think it's a very good question i mean as far as i know the mother la mer was performed in france afterwards 
And he, because of his notoriety, he's, he has access to uh, top performers. So very famous, prestigious actors will uh, gladly work with him. So they usually do very well in France as well. I imagine the forest will transfer also. But there is something profound in what, I mean, I'm sure what, you, what, you, what you're saying is, is true, that there's, he's hit upon a kind of dream formula of just enough Frenchness for uh, le monde anglo-saxon and mm -hmm. other worlds, uh, and that possibly that is where he will fare best, is outside of France. But he's still, there's still certainly an appetite in France for the, where he will then probably be perceived as a sort of Anglo-Saxon product, because coming back from New York or coming back from London, so it, it, it cuts both ways, it works, it works on all levels. There's a the brilliant line you've got in your piece when you say French enough, but not too French, intellectual, but not too intellectual, challenging, but not too challenging. Was that that's just about the forest? That's not about all of his work, is it? Well, uh... oh, or is it? <laughs> <laughs> or do we just watch The Father and then wait for the next one? <laughs> no, well, I think The Father is a very successful adaptation because it's um, it's no really it's no longer a French story, is it? Mm. Uh, so that's very good i yes i do think that there's something a little um sort of as existentialist light or uh you know uh, philosophical light mm. about about the output but that's why it works because it's also trying to be entertainment and so perhaps we can't be too uh, stern about that you know you're trying to give people a good evening out at the theater and at the same time you're trying to do something that holds together as a sort of uh, you know, uh, an artistic proposition. So uh, you can't be too French because then it wouldn't translate so well. You can't be too challenging because a lot of people would leave in the interval. You want people to stay. It's it's a difficult balance and um, not many people have succeeded at it. So he's obviously hit on a balance that works. Yes, he is. He is. He's obviously doing something right. What with his international success and acclaim. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, yeah, we wait and see what the film of the mother is like. Um, Muriel, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you very much. Still to come on the show, Storm Windows, a new poem by Angie Mlinko. And what does it mean in a narrative sense when a character passes out? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we turn to the meaning and implications of fainting in literature, there is time to hear a new poem by Angie Malenko, the deeply atmospheric Storm Windows, first published in this week's TLS. Angie joins us now to read it for us. Angie, hello, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Does this poem come from your new collection, Venice, or does it stand alone like the, like the lighthouse at its heart? No, this is part of a whole uh, network of poems about Florida and, uh, and also uh, Europe, Italy. There's a Venice in uh, Florida as well as Italy. I sort of toggle between the two. Well, without further ado, then let's hear Storm Windows, please. Storm Windows. The first was a fair youth clutching a loaded brown bess. In his pockets, iron hanks and hooks furred green with watercress, then a lady in a farthingale. Some strolled out of the surf, some tumbled to the shore at a king tide's royal rebuff. Each time a squall passed through, a window opened. In furbelows and jewels they came, in drenched velvet doublets and hose. They had danced the tarantella, the gigue, the alemande, but found that a bell on the seafloor can't make a sound. I knew about the shipwrecks. I shuffled up the lacy spiral of the lighthouse steps. Its shadow, like a sundial, fell on the migrant dunes, telling us where we stood. The hour of the Anthropocene, I put up my hood against the wind. The light warmed the iron rails, traced the smile of the horizon filled with toothy sails. Beneath the breakers was a strong box, a tankard, a hogshead of oil, a butt of beer, cider, wine, ordnance, lard for the lamps, at least one encrusted Queen Anne pistol, belt buckles, buttons, coins. They grew a sea gristle but I saw no ghosts, felt no tug at my hem, and the whispers of those strange words like sextant, like vespers, were dredged from my throat as terms were under I could fathom my share in the life they surrender. 
Now twirling the rod, witter shins to make the slats lift on the blind, ruling the landscape. I write, I must, where but in their settled dust. Angie Malenko, thank you very much for that. Venice, a new collection of poems, will be published next month. Now, it might seem implausible that the act of passing out would leave much of an impression on English literature, writes the critic Catherine Hughes this week. When a character in a novel or play swoons, faints, or ends up otherwise unconscious, they are, in effect, going absent without leave. All the reader can do is wait until they come round and start making sense again. But Naomi Booth, a writer and academic whose website lists her interests as including weird landscapes, concentric objects, pregnancy, skin, crocuses and environmental contamination, sees a subtext to mine. In her book, Swoon, A Poetics of Passing Out, Booth argues that characters silenced by a loss of consciousness are in fact speaking volumes. What about? Well, Catherine Hughes is here to help us figure that out. Catherine, hello and thanks very much for joining us. Hello, delighted to be here. Can you sort of set out the premise of this book in a little more detail, please? Yes, I mean, what Naomi Booth does is starts off with the idea that I think we we all have, or I certainly did, which is that when a character's out for the count, unconscious, nothing much can happen. It's like a full stop in the narrative. Um, We just have to wait until they come round again and the story carries on. Of course, what Naomi Booth says very cleverly and and drawing her examples right from medieval literature right through to the most contemporary novels is that actually that swoon, that moment of non-being is actually hugely eloquent and loquacious. It's doing all sorts of not just narrative work, but but personality work. I mean, in other words, people basically pass out for a whole load of reasons, can be anything from fear to uh, lust to panic and it can even be a bit contrived it can just be because you want to kind of get out of a tricky conversation so what she does is make make us look again at those moments where nothing seems to happen and she shows us that you know to the contrary all sorts of things are happening we just need to learn to pay attention and that, that crucially, it's not a stable thing. If a character in something from the in, in something from the seventeenth century swoons, it doesn't have the same meaning as if a character in the nineteenth century nineteenth century novel swoons. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, it's particularly interesting, I think, around gender because we, well, I certainly tended to think, well, it's fainting is just sort of it's sort of ladies, isn't it? In the eighteenth and nineteenth century, it's probably all to do with wanting to express sensibility. And while that's true, it's certainly not true if you go back to the Middle Ages to Chaucer, for instance, where um, well, she has a very good example, Troilus and Cressida, where um, Troilus, who is this young heroic. Trojan hero um, passes out and passes out in a really extraordinary way. I mean, his heart stops, his eyes swivel backwards in his head and he's really out for the count. And this is because he's actually madly in love with uh, Crusade. Now that just goes completely against anything that we're used to thinking about. You know, you'd expect Crusade to be the one who was had an attack of the vapours, but, but not at all. And um, I think, Booth says something quite interesting. She says that when we don't take account of the historical context, we get ourselves into really terrible pickles. So, for instance, there's been a lot of very, very clumsy contemporary criticism around Troilus passing out just when he's about to consummate his relationship with Crusade. 
analytic therapists have been rushing in there to say, well, actually what Troilus is worried about is premature ejaculation or impotence <laughs> or, you know. And actually, no, if you attend to the things that Chaucer says about fainting and you attend to the whole romance tradition of the late medieval period, you realise that actually Chaucer's actually just telling us something about Troilus's incredible strength of feeling, his passion, his power. It's actually a very virile thing to do. Mm. It's not girly. He's not avoiding anything. And I think that's where Booth is so good. You know, she she makes us think again. She makes us feel a bit daft about our resolutely kind of contemporary mindset when we're reading medieval texts. So Troilus is passing out, which which is an example of what a kind of courtly lover he is. Because all the things about, you know, I burn and then I'm icy. And then, you know, you, there's, a, there's, there's sometimes you, you read it in the literature, they say I swoon. But, I mean, you don't really think that's going to happen. But Troilus is just kind of embodying this tradition, is he? Absolutely. Um, he is showing us what, in the courtly tradition, what a proper man does. And what a proper man does is swoon. And what's so interesting about Chaucer's, Chaucer's description is that he actually actually has an angle on the, on the physiological um, symptoms. So Troilus literally, as I said before, his eyes are sort of turning backwards in his head, which must have been very, very scary for Crusade. Um, He feels as though his heart is stopping pumping. Um, It's a very precise physiological description, and it's there to make us see what an extraordinary hero he is. And in terms of the, the, the power of feeling and the fact that Troilus swoons precisely because he is so <laughs> so manly and, and full of passion, um, there's a strange sort of sympathy um, in, in a religious tradition um, in the 16th century, isn't there? You mentioned um, Teresa, um, Teresa of Avila. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, Booth has really interesting things to say about St. Teresa. Um, she actually is barely upright, if you believe her. Um, she seems to be swooning constantly. Uh, she refers to these, St. Teresa does, as rapture. She's constantly in raptures. And she sees this passing out, this being elsewhere as taking her closer to God. So she's literally sort of loosening her earthly ties. What makes it all more complicated is that uh, Teresa also believed that she levitated at the same time as swooning, and so did her sister nuns. And uh, she would have to instruct them, please hold me down, sisters. So it conjures up this extraordinary mental picture of St. Teresa floating up into the air and uh, slightly panicked and nuns kind of holding her down off four corners like a tent in the wind. But uh, again, Teresa is saying something about the extraordinary power of her mental absences, that she is literally, it's an altered state. Uh, it's not an mm. absence. It's a kind of going into a new and more intense place. That's actually true of fainting anyway, isn't it, really? I mean, I don't know about... Um hasn't happened to me very often but it's but it's not like being asleep there is a kind of moment at which it feels very different to either being awake or being asleep you can easily see that that's a religious experience yeah I mean absolutely it hasn't happened to me very much but I I agree it has a different quality I have to say that whenever I fainted I haven't also levitated um (laughs) maybe they just didn't tell you maybe I was floating six feet above and I didn't realize but yeah absolutely it's fainting you're absolutely right Lucy it's not just I feel sleepy it's something happens to one's vision does it I mean in my experience it sort of goes dark around the edges and you get a sort of almost like pinhole type 
vision. It's mm. very, very strange. And you know, you know it's coming on and it's it slowly builds. But you can't stop it. I mean, that's mm. that's the very strange thing about it. Is it it is as if you've handed over your body to to another power, which I suppose is what Teresa was was trying to gesture towards uh, in her slightly kind of heightened language. It seems to me as well that if she's that if she's talking about it, that, that she's communicating with God at those points, she feels like she's communicating with God. That's a very active thing to do. She's not checking out. She's checking in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. She's she she calls again. It's slightly odd. And again, we probably read the language slightly strangely. But I mean, she talks about her um, embarrassment of um, raptures and. You know, there's a sense of it. She is embarrassed, but there's also, I don't know, again, whether I'm bringing my own stuff to it, but there's maybe there's a slight self, um, self-congratulatory self quality. Look, you know, I'm so I'm so good at doing this rapture stuff. It's an embarrassment. <laughs> I'm sorry, sisters. I know, you know, I know it's a bore. You've all got to kind of stop what you were doing and come and hold me down. And pin me down. <laughs> pin me down. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I and again that I may be being crass, but I think there is a sense in which she's um yeah, there's a sort of there's a sort of social awkwardness that then translates into a feeling slightly pleased with yourself because you've had somehow been magicked onto a, a higher higher plane. Yeah, you have this 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 strength, this this superpower that others don't. So at what point then did our literature start to resemble something closer to what we we talked about our assumptions earlier that you know gendered swooning along the lines uh, that we would expect a sign of feminine weakness uh, or, or hysteria or you know oversensitivity I think what Booth says is by the time we get to Shakespeare uh, it's a landscape that we understand in other words it's the girls who faint and if men are knocked unconscious it is you know, during battle, it's because they've lost a lot of blood and are very brave. Whereas the girls faint because they are um, embarrassed, appalled, um, frightened, all those kinds of things. And she's particularly interested in Much Ado About Nothing, where um, the heroine, who's confusingly called Hero, um, <laughs> passes out again just at the moment she is to be married so again at that peak moment of sort of consummation but in this case it's because um her groom Claudia has been misinformed that she's actually been unchaste so this news has suddenly come actually Hero is not not a a maid not a virgin she shouldn't be getting married and Hero is so appalled at that thought that she completely faints away and in a sense, that that I think we understand, because what she's passing out from is not just shock, but also shame, a very proper mm. female shame. What's so extraordinary, what happens next, though, is that while she's out for the count um, and the bridegroom and his party leave in high dudgeon because they, they're very cross at possibly having, you know, had a sort of unchaste, uh, unchaste bride forced upon him, then um, the bridal party sort of clusters around Hero and starts to interpret her body. So her father talks about her foul-tainted flesh, which I think is a bit rude. Which is nice. Thank you, Dad. Uh, it's <laughs> nice, nice to feel you're on my side. Her cousin, who is also the bridesmaid, says, no, she's, she's, <laughs> she's 
she hasn't lied. She she's she's belied. So she literally she's lying down, but also people have told lies about her. And then the friar who really stands in as the as the vicar, the man who's doing the ceremony, launches into this extraordinary uh, account of her body. He's he leans over her recumbent body and says, you know, I've seen her blush when she's awake. Uh, this is absolutely a maiden of impeccable um, morals. There's, she's so chaste. Um, her body is entirely the sort of body that you would want. It's a body that colours up at the thought of anything unpleasant or, you know, um, untoward. Therefore, I know that she is chaste. And there's something quite creepy about it. I mean, there's three people standing around Hero's completely recumbent body, commenting on her in the most kind of peculiar and un unattractive way. But there is a sense in which she has the power. I mean, she is the focus of attention. Um, there is no other conversation in town except this question of what her body is doing, what her body has said, what it means when it behaves in certain ways. So again, I think you get this sense of, yeah, swooning is a sign of, of female weakness, passivity, but also it's got this kind of strange undertow of strength mm. in which it forces all eyes upon itself. If, mm. and and all conversations are about it um so i think shakespeare does something quite quite clever there yeah and then certainly when i mean when you think of um 18th century literature swooning uh, by that point is is pretty well established as uh, a feminine thing if you think of uh clarissa um richardson's heroine is just constantly fainting and it's yeah. like every faint foreshadows and, and cements her her decline her, her kind of her growing weakness and, and vulnerability absolutely but it's it's also a sign isn't it of implicitly of her virtue as well mm. I mean it's when when things are getting too hot she absents herself what I think is so interesting in persuasion Jane Austen's last novel I, I don't know if you remember the, the Musgrave sisters who are two silly girls who quite like the idea of passing out as a yeah sort of they quite birth. knowingly faint don't they yeah um and contrive things one of them jumps down from the cob at Lyme Regis and actually stupidly it all goes wrong and her bow doesn't manage to catch her in time she actually does do quite a bit of damage to herself but Austen is is so satirizing that 18th century heightened sensibility idea of um, you know fainting to show that you are just so such a little china doll, uh, such mm. a lovely girly girl that you need a masculine protector, and you know it's the sort of thing that she has absolutely no truck with at all. Mm. Um, well, you you've um, you've alluded to the kind of the the, the pornographic undercurrent, sometimes less less under and, and, and more over, but um, yes. uh, where this really, really comes out in Booth's study is uh, in the case of Bram Stoker's Dracula. I mean, what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, the way that Booth reads Dracula, it is quite honestly like a sort of 70s porno movie. Again, very few people are upright for more than about two seconds. Um, everybody is swooning, usually as a as a prelude to then being predated upon by a, a vampire, if not Count Dracula himself. So that fainting clearly becomes a sort of stand-in for uh, giving way sexually. And, and it happens now as much to men as women. So there's a very interesting passage with Jonathan Harker, the sort of erstwhile hero, 
he is constantly on the point of swooning. First of all, he gets he once he goes out to the castle, he he's accosted by three um, rather sexy, overbearing women with ruby lips and sharp teeth. And instead of running a mile, he just says he feels completely sort of impassioned. He just wants to kiss that. He wants them to kiss him. And at that point, he sort of virtually faints clean, clean away. At that point, Count Dracula comes in to rescue Harker, who's really playing the role now of you know, maiden in distress. And what does Dracula do? But he picks up the swooning body of Jonathan Harker and takes him off to his bedroom. So, I mean, Booth is very interested in the way that queer sexuality can get played out and through the swoon. So she very much sees Harker's swoon here and being gathered up by Dracula and taken off to his bedroom as a very interesting way of, kind of introducing a whole set of alliances and allegiances which you know aren't there on the surface of the text but at the same time we also have good old-fashioned um patriarchal pornography with these three overbearing ma- women with you know in enormous lips and uh, teeth who are going to bear down on harker and have their way with him so that it's swooning just becomes the kind of um the kind of act that allows the merging of all kinds of bodies in all kinds of possible combinations. Um, there really are no boundaries between people. And, and that's what I mean when I say that you know, reading it again or reading it through Booth's analysis, you do get a sense of a sort of swingers party in the sense that it's a kind of barely choreographed dance of lust and desire in which Anybody can have anybody because there's really no firm, impermeable boundary between each body. Mm, and between the, the, the living and the dead. Um, between the living and the dead. And between and, men and, and women. And between men and women and, well, between everything and everything, really. But, I mean, from, from, from there, Booth, uh, she wants to bring her study up to date, so, so she turns to Fifty Shades of Grey. And for someone who, um, as you describe her, um, has has a very uh, strong interest in in queer sexualities and and coming from something as subversive as Dracula to then find herself talking about Fifty Shades of Grey must have been quite frustrating for her as well. I mean, the swooning here is pretty disappointing and 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 grim. You know, very far from anything subversive or even Troilus like. It's it's the powerless. I think she finds it. She finds it. Booth at the end becomes quite schoolmistressy about swooning, and uh, various people have got you know high marks for for good interpretive swooning. Everybody from <laughs> Troilus the hero to Jonathan Harker, but she will not give high marks to Fifty Shades of Grey because she she sees it as a very thin, um, a thin kind of discourse. There's it's there's there's nothing to be read into it apart from what it is and and what happens is that Anastasia Steele the the heroine again is barely upright uh she seems constantly when the hero uh looms into view to be on the floor at one point she's even being sick um which I can't imagine is meant to be erotic but possibly is she can never as it were inhabit her own body she can't act upon her desires but nor can she even do something interesting with her fainting. I think that that's that's the point. She is squeezed into a corner where her fainting is of the most kind of childish play acting um, 
pointless kind of way. I mean, she literally also wears high heels apparently all the way through. I haven't got very far with Fifty Shades of Grey, and, and she's constantly <laughs> she's constantly toppling off her her high heels uh, and spraining her ankle. She should just wear Doctor Martens, and then you know, I know, short, I know. much shorter book. <laughs> But that's really interesting, I think, because that is a kind of contrived swooning. You know, she's making herself fall by these very perverse choices she makes that she really doesn't have to. And so Booth ends really on quite a cross note, having written very lushly and lovingly about all these other examples of of the swoon and made you feel that it's a subject of sort of infinite richness. You know, just it, it makes you think about text in a completely different way. Even even Dickens has some interesting swoons. I mean, Mrs. Gamp is, uh, Sari Gamp is constantly swooning. And in that case, it's because she just wants to draw attention to herself. So it even enriches those kind of quite comic texts that Dickens writes. Mm-hmm. But something goes wrong with 20 shades, uh, 50 shades. I'm sorry, I, I've demoted it to 20 shades. <laughs> 20 is quite <laughs> enough as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it uses all the kind of... Um, uh, sort of tropes, I suppose we would say, to, of 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 um, vampire fiction. Indeed, it started as a kind of twilight fan fiction. So it it knows what it's doing, but what it's doing is really not very interesting. Well, I wonder then what um, swoony scenes from from literature we should all go back and reread. How our impressions of of books that we think we know so well might might change um, as a result of this. Is there anything that that you, Catherine, that you you think like, oh, I had never noticed. I'd never thought about it that way before. Well, I, I was th- I was really interested in in Dickens, um, the, uh, Mrs. Gamp, Sari Gamp, this sort of comic, obnoxious figure who uses fainting uh, or the threat of fainting as a kind of social currency. I hadn't quite noticed that before. Also in Dickens, I mean, when Lady Dedlock swoons. Um, and it's because of the emotion of realising that Esther Summerson is actually her daughter. Oh, spoiler, you know. spoiler. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody knows that. Um, that this, the, 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 the swoon for, for Lady Dedlock, who has been so in charge, so self-contained, so impermeable to the outside world, isn't she? I mean, she's just bored. She's just, nothing can get to her. The weather, nothing um, Celeste, you know nothing. She's she's entirely a sort of homostatic built, sort of homostatic being of her own making. <laughs> when she swoons, it is the moment of a sort of narrative breach where she kind of enters the plot, the emotional plot of the book. She becomes actually um, a, a, a real person, a real woman, a, mo- a mother who has had to give up her child. I thought that, I, that, again, I think I slightly dismissed before as this is just Victorian melodrama, but thinking more carefully now about what sort of characters swoon and what happens when the swoon is out of character, mm. not the person that you expect. Mm, it's a sort of different kind of rupture to the, the yeah. ruptures that we were talking about with St. Teresa. Yeah. Well, I feel a, listen, a listener challenge coming on to you, Lucy. Favourite literary swoons? Yeah, yeah. why not? Absolutely. Do do, tell us all about them. Um, Catherine Hughes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Angie Mlinko. 
Catherine Hughes and Muriel Zaga. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.